Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White. And I'm Dr. Mika Petucci. And And this this is is The Science of Motherhood. Hello, mummers, and welcome to episode eight of the podcast. I am Dr. Renee White, one of the co-hosts of The Science of Motherhood. My other co-host, Dr. Mika Batucci, is deeply embedded in her baby bubble. Um, She is on mat leave and enjoying the snuggles with her baby boy. I actually recorded this interview a few weeks ago here in Melbourne where we are located and it honestly couldn't have come at a better time for publication. We are currently in day one of lockdown four here in Melbourne. Hopefully it is just for seven days as the government has outlined. But today's podcast is is a chat with Dr. Zali Yeager, who is a maternal mental health expert and researcher. And we sat down and spoke about how mum life can just be so overwhelming, stressful. We spoke about mama burnout and perfectionism in mums as well. And the thing that I really love about Zali, and I think uh, I'm a firm believer that you cross paths with people in this world for a reason, is that she shares the same passion and ideals as myself and Mika as well, in the sense that we are all researchers. And I think when you're in that industry, you see so often the research that is done within the laboratory that is inevitably going to be published um, in some online journal, uh, it very rarely actually surfaces and is readily available to the public unless it has some catchy or um, you know sexy scientific spin that can be um, you know spun by the media I guess and so Zali shares a similar passion as we do in the hope to take research which is published online and in peer-reviewed papers and actually take it straight to the people who need it. And in this case, it's always mamas. So Zali's mission is to bridge the gap between research and mothers and you will hear how she is all about evidence-based bite-sized, actionable information and resources that mamas need to feel better within themselves and be a more present parent. 
There is a caveat to this interview. I was quite sick when I did this. Um, Luckily, it was via Skype, so there was no uh, coughing on anyone. But I have tried my best to edit out as much coughing as possible. So I apologize in advance. Um, But I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. And if there are any mummers out there in Melbourne right now who need extra help, there is obviously um, helplines, COPE organisation, Beyond Blue. And if you are in need of in-home care from a postpartum doula like ourselves, please feel free to reach out. We are still able to visit mummers in home um, as we are permitted workers. So head to our website, ifillyourcup.com to organize a free chat. Without further ado, here is Dr. Zali Yeager. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Zali Yeager. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Now, we have just been talking um, offline and as I keep saying, I feel like we are cut from the same cloth. You, in a previous life, were an academic, you're a mum, and I've just found out that you actually used to live in the exact same neighbourhood I am currently in, which is kind of like really strange. You're the second mum I've interviewed now that used to um, live in Kensington, which is very strange, but I like it. Um cool. So, Zali, do you want to start by telling the listeners who you are, where you're from, from, what's your story? How have you come to the point you are in your life where it's uh, you're on the road to the mama care revolution? Yeah, well, um, gosh, where do I start? So, I always knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. I was very clear on my career goals and um, I wanted to be a teacher. So I went to uni as any um, person who's going to uni, they're the first in their family to do that. I did, does. I went and thought I'd become a teacher. And then towards the end of teaching a degree, I was like, mm, the kids don't really listen to me. Um, and I really want to talk about stuff. So someone <laughs> was like, why don't you do a PhD? And I was like, I don't really know what that is. You're going to have to explain um, and they were like, you know, those people at the graduation who wear the floppy hats. And I was just like, yes, <laughs> I like that. So, um, you know, got kind of interested in research and my passion area was around body image um, because I had kind of, you know, like a lot of teenage girls, I think, um, experienced kind of that sort of body dissatisfaction during that intense period of your life um, and um, did a lot of dieting and, and sort of disordered behaviours. So um, I really was interested in in body image, P- did the PhD, you know, started working in academia and really loving the research world because of um, the ability to really um, be curious about something and then um, investigate that in detail. Um, and then along the way, um, you know, much later than I was just obsessed with having kids for so long um and it felt like I was so old when I had my first baby at 31 because I'd been (laughs) wanting it for so long um but um you know had this first baby and then everything just changed and um yeah it was such a massive change and yet 
everything about the way that I was trying to live was that I wanted to just um, be the same again. You know, like everyone tells us that you should just kind of go away, have this baby, take your mat leave, yeah, have your nice holiday and then come back to work and be the same. And um, so I tried to do that and, you know, it, it, I think ultimately led to sort of the burnout and, you know, breakdown that I had because it was just trying to be the same person when everything about your life and priorities and the way that you can spend your time has actually changed. Um, so my, I had um, the first one and then two and a half years later I had twins and that kind of was like the last last straw kind wow. of moment yep. um, because having um, an older one and then twins is a very special situation to be in um, and not one that I would recommend. I recommend one baby at a time for anyone who's, <laughs> you know, everyone's always like, oh, I love twins and I can like dress them the same and I'm like, yeah. Yeah. That is that is the least <laughs> of your worries. <laughs> it's like you won't have the time or energy to dress them the same. Anyway, um, so, yeah, had these sorts of moments, was still trying to go back to work and be the same and I tried, you know, full, I thought maybe full-time would be better, maybe part-time. I tried all these different approaches but, you know, ultimately it there's just so many systemic barriers to working and motherhood that, just weren't working. And I thought, okay, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to move into state. And so we like moved into state, did the tree change. You know, I'm, I was working remotely from my work. I went way down to like 0.5, which I thought that was crazy to work so little because I was so obsessed with work. Um, and yeah, just still, you know, changed the postcode, but nothing much else changed mm-hmm. in terms of, um, in terms of how things were feeling. And I, I started to really, um, you know, in the way that academics do, start to read some of the literature around motherhood and around um, this concept of matrescence and um, this concept of, um, you know, that there were some societal barriers, but there's also a lot of psychological reasons why some people might struggle with motherhood um, and just got really into it. Um, So I've started doing some projects in that area, but also at the same time along this journey have become really frustrated by academia and the the um the fact that you can do all of this work develop amazing things and then just write a paper about it and speak about it at a conference to some other academics and then like move on to the next thing and never take that step of taking it to the real world and actually have an impact which was the whole reason why I got into academia in the first place because I wanted to save the world and help people and and I wanted to um, help people, you know, specifically in relation to their body image. So my most recent project was around um, body confident mums, and and um, we run Instagram around that, where we were talking about role modelling body confidence um, and um, how to improve body image in in adult mums, um, adult women. <laughs> um, and I just really enjoyed working with the group and wanted to bring all of this new stuff that I was reading about parental stress, burnout, um, you know, self-care um, and, and all of that kind of psychology of motherhood and, and bring that together in a way that I could actually help people. And the specific group of mums that I'm interested in working with, they're in the middle, messy middle part of motherhood because I do find there's amazing people like you guys that are postpartum doulas that are doing all of the work in that first, like, whoa, stage of, initial motherhood which is crazy but there's you know there's a lot of support 
in that year. And there's three different mental health organisations to support you during that year. Yeah, and then once your baby gets, like the definition of postpartum is kind of, you know, um, but once your baby gets past one or two, then it's like you're on your own and there's not a lot of even conversation, I find, around motherhood because it all switches to parenting. Um, and so I'm really interested in just having that conversation about what it's like to be a mother at the moment in our current context and, and situations and how we can improve that experience um, using a lot of the evidence-based stuff that we have um, available to us. Yeah, I, I think um, <clears throat> I, I think I share a similar sentiment to you with with academia. You know, I entered into a research career because I had similar ideals and probably rose-tinted glasses as well. Mm-hmm. In the sense that you know you you want to turn up to your job and do the experiments that you do because. Ultimately, the goal is to change the world for the better. And I think um, anyone who has not um, or who doesn't understand a lot about academic research, you know, it's it's a lot of writing for grants and pleading your case and getting knocked back and you're still – um, insane enough to turn up to your job and do the same experiment over and over and over again um, to expect, you know, a different result perhaps. But as I said, you know, the, uh, the end goal is to change the world for a better and, you know, you hit the nail on the head. You do all of this research and it either turns up in a thesis book, which is probably gathering dust in a university library, and or it turns up in a journal publication online, which to a lot of the public is just gobbledygook and or they don't know where to access it. Um And we were talking about before, you know, if you were to look at a wet lab from bench to bedside for a drug, let's say, to be kind of um, produced, manufactured and all the rest of it, it takes 10 to 15 years. It's a billion dollars. And so, you know, it's fantastic to hear that people like you are kind of stretching your wings out of academia and going, okay, hold on, let's take this information, let's repackage it and let's make it a more digestible kind of pack for the public, for mothers who absolutely need that. So along the way, along your research, what have you what have you found? What are some of the like, you know, kind of top impacts where you go, hold on a minute, how, how, how come we're not acting on this? Yeah, so, oh, so much. And, you know, I am driven to read a lot of these things because of my own experiences and, and to sort of figure myself out, I guess, which is um, which is a fun way to read academic journals because they're not really made for that. Um, but I was looking at a lot of the, um, the postpartum anger stuff, a lot of postpartum depression stuff, and just thinking, oh, there's something missing here. Um, and then I started reading around um, parental stress and burnout and that's really hitting home um because for me I'm finding um you know I was thinking I was crazy right like you sort of go people have had kids for a long time there's so many other mothers in the world like how is everyone else doing this yeah right and and then it was like actually no you're not crazy this is what 
you know, putting together from all of this research, it's, we're not crazy. Some of us have a psychological tendency towards perfectionism, um, which means that we have really high standards for ourselves. It doesn't mean that you, you know, want to do every report perfectly or that, you know, you're doing everything perfectly. It means that you have these really high standards for yourself and also that you have high standards of others' behaviour. Um, and so then we're living in a country where um, we have a highly individualised idea of motherhood. Um, and I was just reading a paper that was, um, you know, like our levels of parental stress and burnout in Australia aren't particularly the highest. But the um, the when countries have a really individualised idea of motherhood in terms of the way that it's operationalised and, you know, we expect basically expect mums to do everything mm-hmm. on their own without their village. Mm-hmm. Um, when countries are like that, then it means that there's a much higher experience of that parental stress and burnout. And Australia, it was Australia, UK and USA have this most highly individualised idea of motherhood. So when we've got that psychological tendency and we're operating in a country that has this individualised idea, um, and then also there's like broader to that, there's all these societal expectations of motherhood that are, I think at this time, the most unrealistic that they've sort of ever been in terms of what we're expected to do, then, of course, we're experiencing this kind of, and I can't even explain, it's like a crumbling or like an emptiness or it's like this challenge of um, trying to be a mother and a woman and have a career in this in this current day and I think um, COVID has really um, has really intensified that because we've had to like do all of the um, mothering stuff and the career stuff without having the childcare that usually allowed us to to operate absolutely Um, so you know some of the research I was reading and this was from Canada but um, the um, research was that usually in mothers um, when they are you know, once the kids are over two, so from two to eight, they've got sort of preschool or school-age kids, um, the um, prevalence of anxiety and depression is usually around 9%, so pretty low. In March 2020, last year in Canada, it was at 40% mm-hmm. of mothers were having clinically relevant symptoms of anxiety and depression. And I think that's just um, really for me, uh, it's it's been a really nice opportunity <laughs> to actually highlight the situation that we're in. Um, and, it, and it's kind of almost made it more important to talk about this um, as we recover and as we come out of that um, moment in time, hopefully it's over, um, as we look forward to like the new normal, how can we recreate that new normal to be something that's more manageable for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was speaking with Dr. Nicole Hyatt from COPE a few weeks mm-hmm. back and we spoke about uh, COVID and the effects of that. And, you know, she was saying as well in Australia, the incidence of perinatal, um, you know, depression and anxiety have just skyrocketed, which is absolutely no surprise. But I just want to go back to your point where, you know, we are living in this very individualised country or we're having a lot of nuclear families now. We've lost that community. Um, it's I've spoken quite loudly and proudly um, on multiple platforms about this. We have lost our village. Mm. And so, you know, there are other cultures out there where when a mother 
has a baby, they truly understand that that woman has become a mother, that mother is born Mm. as well. And so it's an automatic response for them to nurture and nourish that mother because they know that her most important job now is to nurture and nourish her baby. And I Mm. feel like... You know, we've kind of got that backwards here. There's, you know, the baby shower and the fanfare and everyone comes into the hospital and it's like, I want to hold your baby. No, hold, Mm. hold the mother. You Mm. know, she will look after the baby. That, that connection, that relationship is solid. Mm. Um, And so, yeah, more and more research. I was talking with some girlfriends in a group chat yesterday and we were talking about, taking time for yourself and how Mm -hmm. difficult that is because, as you say, we are juggling and wearing so many hats. We're the mother, we're the wife, we're the cleaner, we're the cook, we're the psychologist, the taxi, Mm -hmm. you know. Like I know it's cliche, but we are. Mm -hmm. And then where is our time? When can we just take time for ourselves. And I was in um, preparing for this interview, I was researching as well around, you know, self-care and things like that. And um, there was that paper out of the Murdoch where they were showing that, um, you know, new mothers who make time for themselves mm-hmm. have a reduced chance of postnatal depression. Yeah, And I know it sounds like an easy fix, like, oh, just take time for yourself. But mothers are like, yeah, but when? Because I'm kind of doing everything. Do you have any, I guess, tools or tactics or kind of, you know, things that you would kind of offer as how would how would mothers create that opportunity? Because I feel like that group chat where I was talking to my friends about it, we were talking about, you know, how would we do that? And one of my friends said, it's it's you need to demand it you know there's not there's not pussyfooting around or anything you actually need to demand it and you need to prioritize it do you have any i guess in your research what have you seen and do you have any kind of tips for the listeners as to how they would kind of demand it yeah well i think um you know obviously you and your friends are quite well along the way in in terms of understanding that it's actually important to take time for yourselves. I think the majority of mothers are still back here in in the point where they don't add themselves to the lineup of people with needs. And um, I was reading yesterday, it's like 73% of mothers um, put their own healthcare needs last so it was like in front of them was like kids pets came second and then it was like elderly relatives your partner and then yourself wow so I think you know the majority of women are still back there so the first stage is in awareness and just actually taking on board because we scroll past it on Instagram we might like it you know that post is take time for yourself and and then but it's like no actually you need to take that on and you need to um, realise how important it is because, yes, taking time, literally the time, um, can pr- reduce symptoms of depression, but it can also reduce, you know, anxiety and so many other things. And it, it's just 
it's so important and yet something that we continually overlook and even I do even though I'm banging on about this and I oh, sound like yeah. you know like it's that you'd put it even schedule it in your calendar and then it comes to that time you're like oh no but there's something else that needs to be done now you know so we need to actually um realize it ourselves but I think part of that realization is in the collective agreement that it's important and the way that we work as women is that something has to be sort of socially sanctioned yep. um in, in order for us to think that it's um that it's the right way forward so I think that having that kind of recognition within your group that it's important to take that time is really important it's about prioritizing yourself because of the impact that's going to have on your family and I think that's the way to get through to a lot of mothers is to say remember that time when you um had that hour away you had that afternoon away with your girlfriends and then you came back to your family and you were so present and you were so um you know calm and connect able to connect and you weren't that crazy angry mom who was like shouting at people and you know um, feeling like the chaos in, in your head and in your home. So I think that once we realise that the impact of taking that time for ourselves really does come back out and ripple out to our family, I think that's going to help us to um, actually move to the point where we prioritise it enough to start to do it. My only tip, um, it's the only thing that I've found to be helpful, is to get up earlier. And I rejected that advice for so long because I was like, I'm already, you know, sleep deprived. I'm not going to get up any earlier because I need that little bit of sleep. But in truth, like that time in the morning, that last hour of sleep in the morning was not my best hour. And once I started getting up earlier, I actually feel like I've got more energy because you've sort of started it intentionally. You've got up, you know, it's usually it's 5.30 for me, which is like a good hour before the kids start to emerge and start to need me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so making that time to do the things that I need to do or just be is the only time that I got to because with the age, like my kids are eight, nearly six and six. And so, um, you know, like by the time they all go to bed, then I'm going to bed. You know, there's no time at the end of the day that you can sort of look forward to. So you have to create that time at the start. Um, and, And that's been really the only thing in order to find that time. But then, um, you know, I do think we do need to start demanding it on the weekends as well. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. I 100% agree. <laughs> mm. I mean, I I don't know if I said it on the podcast, but I've definitely said it to Mika before in, in passing. There was, you know, a time where I was just absolutely burning the candle at both ends mm. and I was solo parenting that night and I had to go from mm. work to a childcare pickup. Mm-hmm. And I intentionally left work like 20 minutes early because yeah. I said to myself, I'm going to go home. I'm going to have a power nap. Like I think it was only mm-hmm. 15 minutes <laughs> yeah. because I thought to myself, if I don't, yeah. I am going to not going be to a very not good very- parent. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to be a great no, parent. I'm, I'm not, not going to be present it's going to be so hard for me to do this by myself mm. tonight because I can't tag team with my husband. Yeah. Um, but I think you're right also, like creating that time on the weekend, even if it's just an hour. And I'm pretty sure that's mm. the research um, coming out of the Murdoch was um, that, yeah, the mothers had taken one hour once a week or more and mm. – you know, they initially they were like, surely these results that they were getting were not 
just from self-care. Mm. Um, and they compared it with um, other factors, including what is it, relationship status, general practical and emotional support. But they said there was indeed a strong relationship between measures of social support and how often women had mm. time for themselves. Um, so I think the statistics were that they studied more than 1,500 women and of those women, 15.2% described having depressive si- symptoms at six months postpartum when they had never created any self-care or self-time, mm. whereas women who had time once a week or more, the prevalence of depressive symptoms dropped down to 5.8%. So, you know, that's just over mm. a kind of a third there. But, yeah, I find that really, really interesting and it's such a hard – it's such a hard balance, isn't it? But it is. It is about creating time. I was talking to another uh, friend the other day and she's, you know, she's a mum of two, a third's on the way, and she actually carries, she started this, like you, <clears throat> she implemented something that she was like, I'm going to do this every day and it's going to be weird and slightly uncomfortable in the beginning, but I'm going to do it. She carries around this tiny little um, spiral notepad and every single day she writes at least one thing that she's going to do for herself. Mm. And it's like her checklist. It's like this is not a shopping list. This is not a, you know, a to-do list for her kids, her husband, blah, blah, blah. And she ticks it off. She's like, I have to do this one thing. And it could be something as easy as, going to do the grocery shopping by yourself if that's your jam (laughs) because we all know how hard is it to do the shopping with your kids in tow no thanks oh gosh it's really great and I think part of that is the intentionality so it's just by writing it down by saying that you're going to do it and then by ticking it off you're actually recognising that you're doing it because a lot of us, we, and I was doing this, I would walk around saying, I've got no time for myself. I've got no time. I can't, can't do anything for myself. And then there would be like a 15-minute window that I wouldn't even recognise as being a time. I didn't know what I wanted to do in that time. So I'd just sit there scrolling on my phone through 15 minutes. Yep. The time I could have done something much more constructive. And I think that when we, I mean, the term self-care, I just, so many people groan when we say it. And I um, I hate the, the sort of, um, definition that it's developed but actually when you look at the way the world health organization de- um, defines it it's just about taking care of yourself and you know meeting your own health and well-being needs and so I really think we need to go back and and realize that a lot of the stuff that we already do is self-care if we uh, it's almost like the gratitude thing if we like recognize it and go oh I'm so glad that I had time to paint my toenails or I'm so glad that I had time to do to do some journaling or do that meditation that's great for my self-care if we can realize it and then we're going to start to want to do more of it and to be able to realize what makes us feel best and what what are some of the great things to do um and what doesn't make us feel that good and that was my realization was that I thought that sitting and scrolling my phone was my self-care like I thought it was like this is my me time yeah it was actually you know making me feel terrible most of the time um and by taking that time 
and doing something a little bit more constructive with it or planning what I was going to do um, for my self-care was just so much more effective um, than kind of leaving it to chance. Yeah, absolutely. And on that on that gratitude kind of piece, uh, is there something in particular that you practice? Yeah, so I've tried to do the gratitude thing. I find it really um, difficult to do in the kind of, you know, the stereotypical way of like at the end of the day, write down three things that you're grateful for. Um, But one of my mentors at one point, she was like, you're not even realising all the good stuff around you. And she was like, I bet you walk out into your garden and instead of seeing all the beautiful flowers, you see all the weeding that needs to be done. And I was like, "Uh, yes. (laughs) And my desk looks out over my garden. So I'm just like constantly in that state. She was like, every hour, set an alarm on your phone. I want you to notice something that you're grateful for at that moment. Um, And I was like, she doesn't have kids. And I was like, this is so unrealistic. I hated it. I was like, can we get off this call, please? (laughs) Um, But I did it. And she was like, write it all down, send it to me. So I did it. And after three days, all of a sudden, I was seeing the flowers in the garden because you start to train your brain to notice those those things that are going well instead of all of the chaos and crapness around you. And so I think that even though I hated it at the time, it was actually really powerful. And I, I try to do more of that moment by moment gratitude now, and it's become more automated now. We rewire our brain to start thinking in that way rather than the kind of, right, I'm going to get out my gratitude journal and do it at the end of the day. I think we need to still make it work for us. But also by making it so small as being just like, just notice it every you know at these time points um it kind of made it more possible um so that's in relation to gratitude but i actually think like gratitude is one of the things that you know there's a lot of evidence now showing that it's really effective but i actually think that self-compassion is such a powerful tool um in order to to actually it's, it's pretty much the antidote to perfectionism you know it's like if you were to develop a drug um that would solve perfectionism, I think that I would be bottling self-compassion because you can't be having these super high standards for yourself and being super critical for yourself and be self-compassionate at the same time. Self-compassion is something that I think that we can build in. Um, It takes a little bit of work initially just to kind of get into that frame of mind. It's basically like, you know, turning down the volume on your critical voice Mm -hmm. and turning up the volume on the kind of one in your head that we don't often listen to. Um, And and the kind of um, easy way to understand self-compassion is it's just talking to yourself with the same level of kindness that you would um, a friend. So talking to yourself that way and treating yourself that way. Um, But, and a lot of us go, yep, yep, cool. I, I can, I can do that. But then we don't actually practice that and we keep listening to that critical voice the more we listen to the critical one the stronger and louder that it gets um so one of the first steps that i often recommend to people is um doing some sort of um it's like a meditation visualization that just helps us to actually notice the dominance of that critical voice and listen to the to the kinder one instead and it's mostly based on Kristen neff's work and and then also some of the um compassion focused therapy um stuff but it's this idea that um we can feel the feel the feelings without judging them um which is something that people in our generation haven't been taught to do well um you know emotion in the 80s and 90s was you know not something that you would 
show think right about like um and now it's super encouraged we do emotion coaching with our kids so i think that um it's about feeling the feelings not being judgmental um but then recognizing the fact that a lot of people feel this way which in kristen neff's work is the idea of common humanity you know a lot of people are feeling this you're not alone um and then literally speaking to yourself in the way um that you would a friend um and so i find that that's really helpful it's almost like doing a role play with yourself because you can imagine both voices right so it's mm-hmm. just listening to that um to that kind of one so i find that if you do that through meditation and then you can try doing it through journaling it starts to integrate and just come into your life more because those thinking in that way becomes more automated um by strengthening those neural pathways so that's something that i'm um really passionate about and i'll tell everyone <laughs> anyone and everyone that sits still long enough about self-compassion because there is so much evidence now that it improves body image it improves anxiety improves depression improves happiness like everything that they look at you know will this self-compassion intervention improve this thing so yes yes it does um and it's easy to do it's hard it's um not doesn't take a long time and it's not expensive so i love it as a as a um practice a regular practice particularly for mums yeah, that sounds amazing. Um, and I find this is extraordinary as well. And and also it's it seems to be a similar tone when it comes to mental health because we can't see it, you know, like for example, you know, if someone had diabetes and their leg was falling off, we'd be like, oh, my God, if you practice this self-compassion thing, your leg won't fall off. They'd be like, oh, yes, okay, I'm going to do that religiously three times daily, Mm. you know, like they would with a drug. But because it's a mental health thing, you know, do you think it's because it's not visual? I find it is. Um, And it's harder, I think, also to be, like you were saying, um, we don't really practice our emotions very well. And that's something I'm very passionate about with my daughter. Um, I've, I'm a huge fan of Dan Siegel and um, his work with, um, you know, emotional kind of intelligence and things like that with children. And I found that as I was reading his book, it's pitched at kids, but mm. we're all human, right? So read yeah. between the lines on that. Yeah, I... I just find like people are just, and I don't know whether it's a cultural thing, people are less resistant, uh, sorry, people are resistant to fixing things which have got to do with mental health. I I don't know what it is. Well, a lot of the health behaviour change models sort of say that you need to see the problem as being a big enough problem in order to actually, like health, health behaviour change is really difficult to achieve. So in order to actually do something about it you can't just know about the solution like knowledge doesn't equal behavior you have to actually see the problem as being a big enough problem to fight the inertia and do something about it and I think that often when it comes to um our mental health we expect that like you're going to know you know some some sort of um label or box will come around and you'll know when you are depressed or anxious okay. and, and and that you know then you know when that happens I'll I will um 
go ahead and do something about it. But until that point, like we don't recognise it as being important enough. And so I think moment doesn't come for a lot of people. You know, even, you know, as you're filling out the Edinburgh postnatal depression thing, you can see what the right answers are and give those right answers and avoid, you know, avoid issues. Um, Or, you know, even when you do answer them in a certain way, no one sort of says, this is actually a problem for you, like you need to do something about it. It's all very gentle or something. Um, No one makes it a big enough deal, but we need to recognise and listen to the, the whispers of our body before the scream and the um, never-ending sickness comes, <laughs> you know. So you've left, you've left academia, but you have, I guess, started the new revolution to help mums. Did you want to speak to some of the initiatives that you are organising and um, part of the um, Body Confident Collective as well? Yeah. So um, I'm still transitioning out, if any of my colleagues listen to this. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't had my leaving party yet, but um, (laughs) I'm I'm on my way out. Um, I've started um, a not-for-profit research translation organisation called the Body Confident Collective, um, and our, my aim there um, and the other people I'm working with, it's to really get those resources and information specific to body image off the shelves of, res- of researchers and out of their filing cabinets and out into the real world. Um, and so we've got a range of things coming with that, but it's very slow um, to try and, I guess, um, create change in the, in the way that academics are going to work um, to start to do some of that kind of... Um, that work as well. So my focus at the moment is on um, mama mindset um, and I'm looking to create, I can just see this, the need um, and I can see it really clear. There's such a need for particularly mothers, um, you know, in that early postpartum phase, but also in that middle part of motherhood to have a group of people with whom they can come together and talk about this sort of stuff because it's on podcasts, we can listen to it, there are self-help books, but all of these ways that we can access this information is individualised and it's, um, you know, we're off doing it in our own time and then it's really hard to sort of raise that conversation in your friends, friend groups sometimes depending on, you know, what you normally talk about. But, you know, with me it's like <laughs> so we don't get to see each other that often. It's, you know, the mental health and the self-care and the old things aren't great kind of conversation, you know, comes after all of the other conversations that you've had to have in catching up. So I think I just want to have this group of women that comes together to learn about this stuff, to talk about it, but then to take action and to really hold each other accountable for that action. I just have this, you know, in all of the health behaviour change models, it's like we will do things for other people more readily than we will do them for ourselves. And so that's the kind of concept that they've used a lot in you know promoting physical activity for example it's like you know have that have that partner who'll be waiting for you at the end of the road so so that you'll be letting them down if you didn't go and engage in physical activity and it's the same kind of idea it's can we have some accountability partners and some women with whom we can start to normalize some of the problems but also some of the solutions and learn from each other about what's working um so it's it's almost like a um yeah, like a mother's group 
that's focused around this topic um, for mums who are feeling um, like they're failing all the time and feeling overwhelmed and feeling like, um, you know, this it's just not the way you thought it would be. Um, and to bring together those women um, and start to have these conversations, to bring in all of the experts who write all of the papers, um, to bring them in, learn from them, but then create some actionable steps out of that that we can go and implement in our lives. Um, and that's what I'm super passionate about um, doing at the moment. And I um, write so much on Instagram. It actually tells me, like, okay, you the caption is too long. Like you have to stop now. <laughs> and I just, I just want to keep writing about it and talking about it and um, listening to other people talk about it and hearing from women because I think this is something that's really important that we don't talk about enough. Absolutely. And this, just on the point of like as you were explaining it, I was like this does sound like a mother's group but not everyone gets put into a mother's group which they click with. Not everyone gets put put into a mother's group at all you know um there i can imagine there could be people in rural areas or overseas or things like that so i think it sounds like a really great initiative because you know during pregnancy and things like that you're bombarded with information as soon as they cut the cord you're given virtually nothing as a mother in terms of support and then it kind of dwindles off thereafter like I loved mother's groups and so I had one in Kensington for my first um which was an amazing group of women but then you know people start to go back to work and you sort of stop seeing each other mm-hmm. that often so then I actually when I was pregnant with the twins asked the maternal health nurse I was like I need another mother's group and so I had one for um the twins as well which again amazing beautiful group of women and then um I had a play group which we all had twins plus an, an older one mm-hmm. and so that was you know, a very special mother's group because all of our expectations were like rock bottom. <laughs> and um, it was just so, so I think that it saved me, like meeting up with those women each week and just being like, I'm not alone, this is something. And then having people that were just slightly ahead of you or um, to look up to and just go, oh, okay, it's going to be all right because I know that these things are going to happen. Um, and those sorts of experiences are really beautiful throughout that, you know, early motherhood phase my kids are at school now there's nothing mm-hmm. like there's nothing and um I just crave that um support and that yeah just that group of women that can um that can really help to show you the way that things can be exactly and you mm-hmm. know for me that goes full circle back to, mm-hmm. back to you know how yeah. we were supposed to be raised in a village with other women, with aunties and sisters and cousins and things like that for not only the mother to learn from but also the child um, as well. And with all those different experiences, um, it's kind of uh, the mentality that my husband and I take in terms of raising our child. She's an only child. She's going to be an only child. And so – We've taken the perspective of really mixing up the types of days that she has. So one day's with me, she's got half a day with my husband, half a day with my parents. We've got a nanny for one and then childcare for the other two. And then, you know, weekends or weekends, it's a mishmash of whatever happens. Um, Because it was so important for us to go, okay, 
She needs to have different experiences. She needs to learn mm-hmm. from other people. And I struggled with that in the beginning because as a perfectionist in myself and a type A personality, I wanted to make sure that everyone was doing and parenting, in quotation marks for all those playing at home, the mm-hmm. same way that I was. Mm-hmm. Um because I was like, you know, this is this is the type of kind of parent that I want to be and everyone else needs to kind of toe the line. And my mm. husband pulled me aside and he said, you can't enforce that on others. And in fact, she's not going to have as enriched life mm. because she needs to understand that everyone is different, Renee. You know, she's mm. going to get different experiences from everyone in the world. So, but I think that's true as mothers – when you are in a village type environment, um, you are supported emotionally and physically and mentally. And I feel like once you are around people who have been there and done mm. that and and kind of got through it and it's normalized, like just for someone to say that's really yeah. normal. Don't yeah. like don't worry about that okay, another situation comes up. Okay, no, no, we need to worry about this. This is how we're going to deal with X, Y, Z and gives you the tools to be able to kind of get through it. Whereas, you know, we've got helplines and things like that and I think they're fantastic and they're great initiatives but I don't think you can beat like one-on-one support with people who you have a true connection with and you trust, you know. Yeah. Um, and I agree. I think um, for me, one of the biggest things is realizing that I didn't have to be everything for my kids. I could be the curator of their experiences. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, just taking that step back is like so nice because because of the range of things that they'll be able to be exposed to. But also um, just for me, like it was like, it's not all on me to do everything. And I think that that's one of the shifts that we do need to make. Um, but I think, yeah, the helplines and things are there. A lot of the help is directed towards the pointy end, right? And it's that crisis situation. It's the kind of acute time when you might be, um, when you might be struggling. And I love that those things are there for that, but that's right at the top of the triangle. And there's all this other bit, you know, all the iceberg, there's all this other stuff underneath the water that can help to prevent us to getting to those points. And I think that one of them is definitely, um, well, self-care um, in the true sense of the word, not the bubble bath way. Um, but it's it's doing that self-care, taking that time for ourselves and doing that within a group of women that helps you to feel normal about um, the struggles that you're having but also the, the things that you could do to help yourself to feel better. Absolutely. And I'm a firm believer of prevention is better than treatment. Mm, yeah. So, and, and the research shows that as well. You know, yeah. if you get on top of it quickly, uh, similar to, you know, uh, infection in your arm, you know, mm. you're going to have like a sore spot instead of lose your arm. So in wrapping up, we always ask um, our, lis- uh, our listeners, we always ask our guests Listeners, you're more than welcome to um, send me a DM about this question that we always ask our guests, so feel free. But we always ask um, two things. What's your favourite mum hack and what do you have on your bedside table? Mum hack 
I was talking to someone the other day and I was like, you know, those days when you're like, there's nothing to do, it's raining, what am I going to, how am I going to like survive this day? Mm-hmm. Let's go to Bunnings. <laughs> like there is an indoor playground, there is coffee there and yes. you can end up like if you need to buy something, maybe you can buy a plant that's going to make you feel better about your life. You know, it's just like everything is there that you need on those days. And we spend a lot of time at Bunnings um, and a lot of money at Bunnings. Um, but that's my that's my mum hack for getting through those afternoons where the park's wet. I love it. <laughs> you kids need to run. Um, on my bedside table there's a whole stack of books that I haven't got around to reading yet. Um and I don't know, probably a lamp, um, some water. I try to keep it clear. I try okay. to keep my bedroom is like keep all of your toys out of my bedroom um, because I need that space for myself. Perfect. I love it. Yeah, I was scrambling this morning. Um, I was missing half of my podcast equipment because my daughter thought it would be really good to put all her toys on my desk and then take yeah. all of my um, props and, yeah. you know, things that you kind of prop up your computer and your microphone with and everything mm-hmm. like that, which is, you know, this is part of my bedroom. So um, I can definitely attest to keeping your bedroom clear and clutter-free. So it's perfect. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you again for joining us on the podcast, Sally. I really, really appreciate it. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I feel like we are so similar in trying to get the research out of those dark and dusty places and into the hands and ears of the people who need it most. So thank Mm -hmm. you for joining us. I'm so excited to see what you are going to do next. Um, mm. And for all those playing at home, where would where would we keep up with the Joneses, as they say, with you? Or where can we find you? Yeah, so I'm mostly doing things on Instagram um, through um, Dr. Zali Yeager is my handle, and that's where I do all my mum stuff. Um, and the body image stuff is through at Body Confident Mums and at Body Confident Collective. Um, I've got a lot of Instagram stuff happening. I really like it as a way to just connect with people and just do little bite-sized pieces of information um, and and having great chats. So I'm on Instagram and I've got a website. I'll send through the links so you can pop them in. But, um, yeah, Insta's the, the place. Perfect. Well, guys, that'll all be in the show notes for you. So head over to ifeelyourcup.com and then find the podcast tab there and you will see Sally's beautiful face and you can find out all her details there. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, Thank you. Thanks for having me. Cheers. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services, including our postpartum in-home care and our Fill Your Freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.